Today we come to the fourth and final sermon in a series entitled The D&D Challenge. Over the last month, we have framed our conversation around the understanding of generosity. Generosity is not only a characteristic of God, but it ought to be a characteristic of God's people. I've tried to clearly communicate that I don't want generosity from you, I want generosity for you. I'm not trying to get anything out of you. I'm trying by the grace of God to get something into you. We stand at a significant historical crossroads here in the life of First Baptist Church, Pelham. We have the opportunity today to significantly reduce debt over the next five years and simultaneously to raise disciples both locally and globally by partnering with ministries that have an eternal impact. I've heard it said that generosity is not a classroom exercise in mathematics and percentages, but generosity is a homework assignment that encompasses all of life. So today, we save the best for first. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to the Book of Genesis, chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 1 to 12. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis, chapter 4, let's begin at verse 1, and we'll conclude with verse 12. Adam lay with his wife Eve. She became pregnant, gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is the first chapter of sacred scripture that's set outside of the posh Garden of Eden. In the first three chapters, Adam and Eve were created for each other by the Lord. They live there in Eden they were disobedient to the Lord. They ate the forbidden fruit. God evicted them out of the garden. And while it's true that sin 
tainted everything in humanity and all of creation, there still in this story is a thread of grace. Grace is woven throughout the tapestry of all the Bible from the first book of Genesis to the very last book of Revelation. Here we see the gracious hand of God in this, that even though sin had tainted everything in humanity and all of creation, sin did not destroy the image of God that had been stamped upon mankind. Humans are still made in the Imago Dei. They are still created, formed, and fashioned in the image of God. We see this in the fact that at beginning in chapter 4, Adam and Eve came together. Eve became pregnant. She gave birth to a bouncing baby boy, and his name was Cain. Now, you and I may take conception, delivery, birth for granted, We should never do that. It is a mighty miracle of the Lord. And we see here the very first individual born on planet Earth. His name was Cain. I can imagine the joy that mom and dad must have had. Adam and Eve rejoiced because by God's help, they were able to create uh, another human. And sometime later, we don't know how much longer it was, but sometime later, Eve conceived, gave birth to a second child, also a boy. They named him Abel. Cain and Abel were as different as night and day. It's always amazing to me that two children can come from the same two parents and they can be as different as as anything when it comes to looks or likes or interest, personality, habits, or hobbies. Such is the case with Cain and Abel. Different as night and day. One of the ways we see their differences is that we are told that Cain was a farmer. We are told that he worked the soil. Abel was a shepherd. He was a keeper of the flocks. And even though they were different, they still were raised under the same instruction of God-fearing parents. Adam and Eve taught both their boys to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, told them to look around and everything you see, everything you don't see, has been given to us by the benevolent hand of God. In verse 3, we are given a glimpse to the very first worship service in sacred scripture. Now, you can look as closely as you want to, and you're not going to find a sermon title in there. You're not going to find a list of the songs that they sung on that day. You're not even going to find a bulletin for crying out loud. You're not going to find any of that when you look in verse 3. But what you will find is that these boys came to church to give an offering. They had been taught by mom and dad that whenever you go before the Lord in worship, you never go empty-handed. Because God has given you everything you have. It's not that you're paying paying him off. It's not that you're even paying him back. You're just saying, you are worthy of my adoration. You are worthy of my respect and my worship. And so I do not come empty-handed. And here, what I have in my hand, I give unto you. And so we are told that Cain brought some of the fruit from the field and offered it to the Lord. And Abel brought some of the fat portions from the firstborn of the flock, and he offered that unto the Lord. In verse 4, we find a very interesting statement. The statement says that God looked with favor upon Abel and his offering, but he did not look with favor upon Cain and his offering. That statement begs the question, why? Why did God accept Abel 
and the sacrifice of the fat portions of the firstborn of the flock? And why did God reject Cain with the offering of some of the fruit from the field? What gives? Why was one accepted and the other rejected? If I begin to apply the contemporary standards and critiques of what we think makes for an acceptable worship service unto the Lord, I must tell you up front, it does me no good. It's not helpful in the least bit, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about it with you anyway. But it's not helpful at all. I'll go ahead and tell you up front. For example, um, we think that when we begin to describe an acceptable worship service or even an acceptable worshiper, we say that um, the, uh, the acceptable worshiper has to be here in attendance. When I begin to think about that, the scripture doesn't give me any indication that somehow Abel was there three weeks out of four in every single month and that Cain was somehow a Christmas Easter only worshiper. We're not given any of that indication. In fact, we're given every indication that both the boys always came to the worship service. We're not given any indication that somehow Abel um, took notes of the sermon. But Cain was bored to death, and he began to look up and count the number of lights in the ceiling. One, two, three, four. We're not told that one of them wore a suit and tie, and the other one wore cut-off blue jeans and flip-flops. We're not told that one of them sang hymns and the other one sang choruses. We're not told that one of them strummed a harp and and the other one beat the rhythm of the music on a drum. We're not given any of that, and yet that's how we evaluate whether a worship service is acceptable and whether a worshiper is acceptable in the sight of God. Can I give just a little two-cent commentary along the way? I don't really know that God cares all that much what we wear or what we sing or what we play. I do think that God cares that we wear something. And I think that God cares that we worship him wholeheartedly. But what we wear or what we play or what we sing, I don't know, carries a lot of weight with God Almighty. That's another sermon for another day. I've got to press on to this one. So we begin to think to ourselves, what gives? What's the difference? Why in the world was Abel accepted and his offering accepted? And why was Cain rejected and his offering was rejected? Many theologians have spilled a lot of ink trying to answer that question. Some of them have concluded that the reason Abel was accepted is because he offered a blood sacrifice unto the Lord and Cain did not. And certainly I understand the line of that logic You and I both know the verses that say that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We understand that. We get that. But there are times in the Mosaic Covenant when it seems very acceptable to give a grain offering in the place of a burnt offering. Still others have said, well, the reason God did this is because God likes lamb chops more than he likes apples. Still other people have said, well, the reason God did this was because of his sovereign selection. He just sovereignly selected Abel over Cain. Now, I need to tell you up front that no one will affirm the sovereignty of God more than me. I I advocate for a God who has everything under control. He knows the future as certainly as he knows the past, but I think there's something more to this story than just a sovereign selection of Abel over Cain. So what gives? 
What's the basis of the acceptability of Abel over the acceptability of Cain? I think the answer is glaring at us in black and white ink. I think it jumps off the page. Take a closer look at what Abel offered. We are told that Abel offered the fat portion of the firstborn of the flock. In other words, what Moses is telling us is that Abel offered the best of the best. He offered the best. That was the firstborn of the flock. To offer the one that was born first was to say, Lord, you're in charge of the entire flock. For me to give the firstborn of the flock is to say, Lord, you have controlled the entire farm. Everything I have belongs to you. You have the first, you have the last, you have everything in between. All of it is yours. He offered the firstborn of the flock. But not only did he offer that, he offered the fat portions. Now, beyond reasons for my explanation, I can just tell you that in the days of antiquity, that the fat portion was believed to be the best portion of that animal. So Abel said, God, not only do I give you the best, but I give you the best of the best. I give you the fat portion of the firstborn of the flock. And the Lord says, I have accepted you and your offering. Take a closer look at what Cain offered. Clearly, Moses writes that Cain gave some of the fruit of the field. He gave some of the fruit. Moses could have written this any way. He writes this specifically for this purpose, for it to jump off the page and us to ask the question, well, where are the first fruits of the field for Cain? Certainly, if you have some fruit, you've got to have first fruit. So where's the first fruit that Cain has? And the only implication is he must have used it on himself. And so he gave God some. Some of the fruit that was bruised and smelly, rotting, he gave God what was left over. And because he gave leftovers, the Lord did not shine with favor upon Cain or his offering. When I understand this, I realize that God examines both the gift and the giver. That somehow the condition of the giver reveals the acceptability of the gift. When you give, how do you give unto the Lord? What I mean by that is when you give, and by the way, the implication is that you do give. Okay? So when you give, do you give from the firstborn of your financial flock? Or do you give just some of the financial fruit that's left over? When God smells your offering, when he smells the offering plates of First Baptist Church Pelham, or when he smells the offering boxes of our congregation, or when he smells the D&D challenge box, what is the smell that goes into the nostrils of God? You do realize your offering has an aroma, don't you? You do understand that your offering has a smell. What does it smell like? Is it a sweet-smelling fragrance unto God as if you have been a, a offering the best of the best unto him, the first fruit of your financial uh, 
flock? Or is it smelly? Is it rotting? Is it just some of the fruit of your finances that you give unto the Lord? When God smells your offering, what does he smell? Is there a sweet aroma or is there a foul stench? When you give, do you give off the top to God? Whether you give weekly or monthly or however you give, do you give off the top unto the Lord or do you give to God out of the surplus that's left over after all the bills are paid? You say, Pastor, what's the difference? At least I'm giving something. I bet there's some scallywags in here that aren't giving anything. And you begin to look around and think to yourself, now who's in here that probably doesn't give anything? At least I give something, even if it's smelly, even if it's rotten, at least it's something. Don't I get some credit for that? What's the difference between a first fruit gift and a smelly some fruit gift? What's the difference? The difference is the difference between divine acceptance and divine rejection. You say, whoa, pastor, you've now stepped into a works-based salvation. No, I have not. I have not. In fact, what I'm telling you is that our God will not take second seat on anything in our life. He won't take second best in our relationships or our riches. He won't take second best in our uh, family or our funds. He won't take second best in our marriage or our money. Jesus won't take second seat to anything or anyone. That's all I'm saying. This Jesus that we serve expects and demands the best. So Abel and his offering, they were accepted. Why? Because he gave the best of the best. But Cain and his offering were not accepted. They were rejected. Why? Because he gave what was left over. And truth be told, it stank. It was rotten. It was just some of the surplus. Cain was angry. I find it interesting that before the worship service was over, Cain knew his offering had been rejected. You know what you call that? Conviction. Cain knew it. He understood. Somehow by the power of God, by the spirit of God, he knew that what he was What he had given was unacceptable in the sight of God. And his response was not remorse. His response was not repentance. His response was anger. And before he could get out of the church service, God had a one-on-one conversation with him. Mano y mano. Why are you so angry? God says, why are you downcast? That word downcast means, why are you scowling? Why, why do you have that look on your face, Cain? I can read not only your outward look, I can read your inward heart. Why are you so angry? Why are you so downcast? Do you not know that if you do what is right, you will be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must master it. You know what God is doing? God is offering Cain an invitation. That's what he's doing. Cain, I can help you. Cain, you can repent. Cain, you can do what is right by my power. Cain, 
Do you not know that if you do what is right, you'll be accepted? But if you persist in your disobedience, if you refuse in your rebellion, if you continue down this path, I want you to know that sin is crouching at the door of your life and your heart. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And the only way you can master it is by my mercy. Oh, Cain, I'm here to help you, God says. What a glorious invitation. My friends, if I were to tell you that before you leave church today, God is going to talk to you. And God is going to reveal to you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. If I were to tell you that, if I were to promise you that, that before you leave, God is going to speak to you. He's going to reveal some things to you, some things that are good, some things that are junk, some things that need to be commended, some things that need to be corrected. This God is going to have a one-on-one conversation with you. What would you do with that which God reveals to you? What would you do with it? Now, hopefully all of us would say, well, because it comes from God, I'm going to listen. I'm going to do it. I mean, it's not the preacher telling you, it's God telling you. I mean, God is going to tell you what to do, what's right, what's wrong, what's acceptable, what's rejected. God is going to tell you what to fix. God is going to say, I'm here for you. God is going to say, I can help you. And if I promised you that God was going to say that to you, how would you respond? You would want to say, I would respond in obedience. I would respond in gratitude, thanksgiving unto the Lord, saying, Lord, thank you for helping me. I was going down the wrong path, and you corrected my sights and my gaze. So I give you credit, glory, and worship. Thank you. Thank you for helping, healing. Thank you for rescuing and restoring. Oh, my friend, isn't that what you would say? I think one of the problems, not only in this story, but in our life, is that we don't take sin as seriously as God does. We we don't take our sin as seriously as the Lord does. We excuse it, we explain it, we sweep it away, we justify it, we say it's not that bad. We begin to compare it with other things that we hear about other individuals. We think, well, our life is not as bad as theirs, I must be okay. The imagery that God gives is that sin, whatever form it takes, sin is crouching, poised ready to pounce, a lion looking to devour you. It's got to be dealt with. Either you master it or it will master you. You only have one of two choices here. You are going to open up your heart to something. You are going to open up your wallet to something. You are going to open up your marriage to something. You're going to open up your parenting to something. You're going to open your future to something. You have one of two choices. Either you can open all of your life to crouching sin, or you can open it to a crucified Savior. Those are the only two options. And you do realize that if you open your life to anything other than the Savior, that if he is not first place, then some form of sin will take his place. If he is not first place, then some form of sin will take his place. 
So church, I want to tell you, beware of the crouching sin. Greed is crouching at your door. Pride is crouching at your door. Jealousy is crouching at your door. Pornography is crouching at your door. Sexual promiscuity is crouching at your door. Alcoholism is crouching at your door. Materialism is crouching at your door. Embezzlement is crouching at your door. Lying is crouching at your door. Either you will master it by the mercy of God or it will master you. Jesus offers the invitation to Cain. He says to Cain, listen, I'm here to help you. Do you not know that if you do what is right, you'll be accepted in my sight? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching. It desires to have you. And you must master it. Cain did not listen to God. He walked away angry. His refusal was willful. His refusal was voluntary. He walked away. He called his little brother Abel. He said, let's go to the field. And there Cain attacked Abel, and he killed him. In Genesis chapter 4, you find the first birth in human history. It doesn't take any more than eight verses for the first death to take place. And that death is murder. Once again, the Lord shows up to Cain. What have you done? Where is your brother, Abel? I don't know, he says defiantly. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is every time of the day. I don't have his daytimer. I don't have his, his palm pilot. I don't, I don't have his iPad. I don't know where he is. I don't know what he's doing. I mean, you're God for crying out loud. You probably know where he is. God says, yeah, I do know where he is. In fact, listen, you hear it? His blood is crying out to me from the ground. Abel, who never spoke one recorded word in sacred scripture, has blood that's crying out to God. Listen, do you hear it? Listen. Do you hear the blood of Abel? It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, where the author says, By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. By faith, he was regarded as righteous. By faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. What does the blood of Abel say? What does it speak when I think about the first bloodshed on the pages of sacred scripture, I cannot help but think about the ultimate bloodshed on the pages of sacred scripture. For when I think in Genesis chapter 4 of how the blood of Abel was cast and flowing to the ground, I cannot help but think about the gospel writers that record the blood of our precious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that flowed from his brow down his body onto the ground. And that blood says something to this blood. Because the blood of Abel pronounces death, but the blood of Jesus pronounces 
life. The blood of Abel speaks guilt, but the blood of Jesus speaks grace. The blood of Abel speaks rebellion, but the blood of Jesus speaks righteousness. The blood of Abel personifies murder, but the blood of Jesus personifies mercy. Oh, the hymn writer is exactly right. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all of my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you hear the blood of Jesus proclaiming out to you life today? Listen, do you hear it? God says unto Cain, I can hear the blood of Abel. And it's crying out to me. It's almost as if once again, once again, even even though Cain is, is where he is in this predicament, it's almost as if the Lord says unto him once again, you can only open your life to one of two things. Either you'll open your life to crouching sin, or you'll open your life to a crucified Savior. Which will it be? Who has divine access to you? Who has control of your life? When it comes to your generosity, when it comes to your giving, let me tell you. The first fruit of your finances, the firstborn of your financial flock, it doesn't go to the U.S. government. The first fruit of your finances doesn't go to the mortgage company. The first fruit of your finances doesn't go to Alabama Power or Walmart. The first fruit of your finances doesn't go to vacation and it doesn't go to the dance team. The first fruit of your finances goes only to God. Because as God's people, we open our heart. We open our lives. We open our wallets. We open our relationships. We open everything we are to a crucified Savior. So we save the best for first. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we give you all that we are. We give you all that we ever hope to be. Lord, we give you our relationships and our riches. Oh, Lord, we do not want to fall prey to crouching sin. We want to live our life in perfect obedience to a crucified Savior. So, Jesus, by our actions, not only this day, but in the days ahead, help us to demonstrate our love, commitment, and dependency upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.